The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone and you're very welcome to this, the Inside Politics Christmas Ask Us Anything special from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. We have thrown both our abundance of caution and all pretense at professionalism to the winds and for the first time since I think the immediate aftermath of the 2020 general election, I find myself in physical space in the studio on the newsroom floor of the Irish Times with our in-person crew of Pat Leahy, Jennifer Bray, Harry McGee and Jack Horgan-Jones. God rest ye all. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. May I say you Christmas. Christmas. Yeah, everyone how great it is to see you and how well you're looking. Ho, ho, ho. You may indeed say that, and I may choose or not choose to believe you, Pat, but thank you for that anyway. I do appreciate it. So onwards and upwards, straight into the questions. I thought we'd start with something relatively straightforward, and it is a problem, I think, that is posed for all the political parties in the years ahead. My name is Shane, and I have a query about the next general election, where parties will be obliged to run a minimum of 40% female candidates, up from 30% at the last general election. I'm wondering where Hugh and the panel think that the big parties in particular are going to find all of these female candidates. Remember, at the last general election, Fianna Fáil managed to return only five female candidates out of 38 TDs, and Fine Gael only managed to return six female TDs out of 35 elected in total. Now, Jen, Shane points out correctly that the numbers of female TDs elected by those two parties was not very impressive. On the other hand, the number of candidates and the number of successful candidates is not necessarily exactly the same thing. But 40% is still going to be a challenge for them and for other parties? Yeah, and the most important thing to say is that it's not just a 40% figure up above nothing. You know, there's a direct link there to state funding. Um, From what I've heard, and I have been doing a bit of digging around um, the last couple of months just to see what preparations different political parties are making in relation to the 2025 general election. And there are, you know, uh, the, you know, selection conventions, not particularly, but certainly preparations for them. And I think they are finding it difficult to uh, attract female candidates because one of the criticisms that came out uh, in, in the last general election 
from female candidates that were put on the ticket was that they were being added to the ticket, but they weren't necessarily being given the full support of the party infrastructure uh, and, and all the levers of the different parties. Effectively, the argument that they were making where they were being added as token candidates, that their male um, counterparts who were on the ticket we're getting kind of the, the full half of the party. You know, and support. is that true, do you think? Well, I, I spoke to a couple of different female candidates and I fully believe them and they gave me different examples. I found it really depressing, actually. And they were saying they genuinely just felt like token candidates. They didn't get the support. They didn't get the media training. They weren't put forward for media interviews. Um, so and, I think, and they were added late. And they, right, that's the other thing, they were, very late. You know, I think Fianna Fáil in particular was, you know, a little bit below the 30% mm. mark. And so it added yeah. a couple of candidates, yeah. uh, a couple of female candidates at the end to bring it up to the 30% thing. They'll do the same. Mm. Uh, but is that kind of dodgy stuff. practice and it is dodgy it practice? Is. Has that not become even more difficult as the as the percentage goes higher again? Yeah. Yes, and look, I, I'm not. I don't intend to get into the debate around, you know, quotas. Do they work or don't they? People disagreed, and some people agreed. I think by and large they have worked. I don't think they'll get away with that this time, in terms of because I think a lot of the criticisms kind of went underneath the radar. I was talking to female candidates who were saying this things to me. I think some of them were afraid to say it publicly because it's hard enough now to to run as a female. Um, you know, and there's the whole issue of kind of incumbency and. And not having that historical infrastructure behind you. But I think this time, actually, parties will find it very difficult to do that, to throw in cans at the end, not support them, not give them media training, not put them forward um, and just use them as token candidates. That'll be the challenge. And I think women will be much more forthright in their opinions this time, or at least I, I sincerely hope, hope so. And I will certainly be going out of my way to talk to female candidates about their actual experience. Well, I look forward to that. We're on to our next question. It's from John Ryan. Hi there, it's John Ryan in Hong Kong. It's generally accepted that housing and healthcare are in great need of investment, and they're two areas that the governing coalition will be held to account on in the next general election. So why isn't there any serious talk about borrowing for investment in infrastructure, the kind of investment that will pay for itself over the medium to long term? There's a strong case to be made for borrowing to build up healthcare and housing outside the ordinary fiscal cycle, and I don't see anybody in or out of government making that case. Harry McGee. Okay, thank you very much. Hospital pass, I think it's called, isn't it? Yes, I think so. Or a, yeah, or a ton of bricks coming down upon me, whichever health or housing analogy you want to use. Well, they do borrow to invest in infrastructure and they have been doing it for as far as I've been following politics. Maybe he's talking about investing more, even more in housing and healthcare. Both have got um, record uh, funding in recent years uh, especially since uh, corporation tax turned out to be the magic money tree that everybody's been looking for for many years and uh, suddenly uh, uh, departments were be able to splash the cash at particular um, issues. I mean, there's a very famous um, documentary made by a filmmaker called um, um, Earl Morris, I think, and it's about uh, a retired US Defence Secretary and former General Manager of Ford Motor Corporation called Robert McNamara. And he was a fascinating man. And Earl Morris uh, interviewed him at a very uh, early age. And he spoke about 10 or 11 things that he had learned in life. And uh, his most famous uh, observation related to the fog of war. And he said, once war starts, things quickly become so complicated that it's beyond the scope of the human mind to be able to comprehend what things are happening and what things are going to happen. And sometimes I think of exactly the same when I look at housing and health. 
they're very, very complicated areas, both of them. And I, I think the scope of government, any government to actually solve them is quite limited. It can, it can provide some direction, it can provide some impetus, of course it can provide funding. But to, to think that it's within the wherewithal or within the width of any particular government department to solve a societal issue in totality, I think is fanciful thinking because government ultimately has a limited scope in terms of its influence in any particular society, unless you're talking about a closed society or a society where the state more or less controls everything. However, having said that, there are countries, I think we can definitely agree, there are countries where economic long-term planning has been executed better than it has been in Ireland. And there is an underlying idea of counter-cyclical expenditure, isn't there, which Ireland definitely hasn't followed. We've done the McCreevy, if we have it, we spend it thing where public expenditure goes up enormously when the economy is flush and it goes into the toilet when the economy collapses. And a lot of economists say that's the wrong way around. Yeah, it's it's very, I mean, there are 150,000 employees in the health services in, in Ireland. There's possibly more now since COVID, since the last time I, I counted. And there are lots of... Fair, that would take a while to count them. <laughs> Individually, one by one. But there are um, there are lots of kind of embedded interests or lots of kind of embedded work practices or lots of ways of doing things that have been done for decades. And to untangle all those and to untie all those uh, would take a, a huge national effort that would involve not just the government, but everybody else. And I think you're right. I mean, in relation to structural planning and structural thinking, I think Ireland has been quite weak. I mean, politics doesn't really lend itself to long-term thinking because you have governments uh, which have terms of four to five years. So they're not thinking about what's going to happen in 20 or 30 years' time. Um, I was on the the governing board of um, NUIG for a couple of years and I was surprised a lot of its talk was about projects that they were going to be doing in 2045 and 2050. They were thinking long-term help, but they can do that because that's the nature of the institution. Here in politics, we'll have a 20-year plan and there'll always be a big deficit between the plan and its implementation because politics doesn't have the, the, the longevity uh, to see plans through from beginning to end. And we've seen it with big projects like hospitals, like road infrastructure in the past where there has been that lack of continuity. And in some cases they've come and they've began to think about things in terms of long-term planning. I think the motorways, they, they got, after making a couple of very fundamental errors in the late 1990s in relation to how they approached it, I think from the noughties on, I think the motorway infrastructure planning was much better handled now, we have Sloan Care uh, in the health services, but again, uh, you know, it, it, it's a very good plan. It involves a huge investment and it, and it, and it, it also entails a, a sea change in the way that health services are run in this country. And you have to be able to bring everybody along. And I just don't see the kind of the political will or wherewithal to do that at the moment. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about the appointment of Leo Varadkar as Taoiseach is that he has... Um, he, he, for the first time, has kind of placed uh, long-term planning at the at, at the centre of government. If you look at his department now, uh, amidst the the uh, responsibilities within his department, and amidst pa- Pascal Donoghue's new responsibilities, uh, will be a responsibility to ensure that the national development plan, which is a long-term plan, is implemented uh, fully. I think that's probably a recognition of that lack of kind of long-term strategic and structural planning that we have uh, with within Ireland. But even having said that, even with that, you know, uh, we're going to be back here in after the after the next election, and maybe three or four years after the next election, talking about the same problems in housing but and planning. That's why the question is so interesting because it is, you know, how do we fund 
all of the homes that we need. Let's say it's technically 45, 47,000 in reality. Like there is a gap there in in funding uh, private residential activity. Like if you saw what happened to Celtic Tiger, the banks, you know, we saw, we know what happened. They threw the kitchen sink uh, at it and then we had institutions going bust. And when they withdrew, we saw, you know, uh, private residential funds coming in, vulture funds and all the controversy that that brought. And now apparently they're also backing away because of the, you know, the rising interest rates and how it makes it yeah, so I much mean, more unfavourable. In reality, like it needs at least 12 billion and, and every health, year And healthcare is, healthcare is not getting any cheaper. No. You know, people are living longer. But the point I'm making is the state absolutely will have to step in 100% yeah, and do and, more. And but what, what these are all very good points. I, w- I would say that the, the question was about infrastructure and it can be a bit difficult to figure out what is actually infrastructure and what's ongoing employment of healthcare professionals, for example. But I mean, my perception, Pat, would be that one of the things about Ireland is that we have gotten an awful lot more wealthy a lot of us and the nation as a whole over the last 30 years. But that wealth has not been matched by the public realm and actually the, the, you know, the infrastructure of the city in which we're in right now lags way behind cities in other parts of Europe that are notionally much poorer than we are. So there's some kind of shortfall has happened there on an ongoing basis under successive governments. Yeah, it's because there's no political reward for long-term planning or even medium-term planning and there is a resistance, there's a, a, a cultural resistance in Irish public life to anybody being inconvenienced by anything. And so I, I make no judgments on the merits or otherwise of uh, individual housing developments or of bus connects, corridors, whatever. But as soon as something is proposed like that, that involves inconvenience for a certain group of people, it becomes politically impossible to do to the extent that... Um, I was at the European Council Summit in Prague earlier uh, this year and uh, we had a doorstep at the gates of Prague Castle with uh, Michal Martin, and, um, who was still Taoiseach, yeah, of course, at the time. And, you know, the subject of the... Uh, uh, of the the summit was mostly about uh, mostly about Ukraine and the EU is going to do. And uh, one of the questions Michal Martin was uh, thrown was uh, about a bus connects type plan in in Cork, and uh, and he was immediately briefed on it and uh, said, you know, it was disgraceful some of the things that were happening. And people were, you know, scared that their front gardens were going to be taken away and that they'd have to walk unsustainable amounts to the uh, to the bus stop and uh, so forth and that they needed to go back to the drawing board on it. And politicians act that way because it is in their electoral interests to do so. And until such time as the voters begin to demand a greater focus on medium or long-term planning from politicians, uh, then we won't get it. I'm very glad you made that point. It's always a popular point on this podcast, which is that it's all the voters' fault and it's very important <laughs> no, no, no. to make that. It's, <laughs> it's true. I mean, it's true. true. It's absolutely well, true. Let me, let me, let, let me offer a caveat to that or a, a qualification to that rather, which is to say that the, the voters are one part of our political culture. Yeah, they tend to, they do tend to get away scot-free a lot of the time. Everything though. isn't the voters' fault, but the voters also have to take responsibilities for yeah, their okay, choices. Okay, now you've heard it. You all, 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 all you listening um, stand reproved. <laughs> now we have another question. This, uh, this is in text form from Sean B. This is, a, this is a most serious question, actually. And it reads as follows. Who would win a fight between inside politics and your politics? 
I was slightly bemused by this question at first because I said, what is this your politics thing? So I had to Google it. <laughs> and apparently um, RTE, who are quite good at uh, yeah. broadcasting, but not very good, let it be said, at podcasting. Most oh, of the you. Time. Um, they do have, they have apparently launched some kind of a thing, which is, you know, it's a little bit Father Teddish, you know, that, 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 you know, that Father Ted episode when Father <laughs> Demo and whatever the other father is called. Yeah, and, yeah. They, you know, they all get into he fights and overcome like each other. <laughs> so anyway, this question, um, this Sean, without us drinking on this Sean Breen, this Sean Breen goes, goes on to ask, he, he, he nominates some bouts. Hugh versus Paul Cunningham in the heavyweight division. Pat versus Michael Lahan in the flyweight division. What? And Jen versus uh, Sandra Hurley in an unspecified division. That's because uh, that uh, person has tact, clearly some tact, <laughs> not, to, not to mention a weight. I would have to say Paul Cunningham, I think, is a longer reach than me. Uh, may I also say that uh, our colleagues in RTE have mentioned to me a number of times how much they enjoy the, this podcast. Well, I like their one too. So... I mean, that's all. <laughs> no, it is Christmas. Yeah. It is Christmas. Yeah. I'm expecting you to say, well, I really like your podcast as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I do. So, I mean, Paul, I mean, he's a little bit taller, so he might have that advantage over me. Does, I can be vicious they, when, when, sure, when provoked. Sure I can imagine Intellectual, that. though. Intellectual heavyweights versus physical well, actually, heavyweights. It could be that. Now that I look at it, Jack, you're absolutely right. What other kind of heavyweight could they possibly have meant? Pat, yeah, they're 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 going going does that mean myself and Lahan are intellectual flyweights? It does. Like, well, light, yeah, lightweights <laughs> is probably more accurate there, all right. All, all, all right, Pat. How, how do you you're think You're taking no prisoners today. full of Christmas cheer for Pat today. How would you stop Michael Lahan, you know, you know, throw you into a cage fight together? Very fond of uh, of uh, of Michal. Um, I often see him down in Kerry, where I go as often as I can. I'll be I'll be there over Christmas. I might see him again. Um, but he he does have the sort of demeanour that I'd say you could be pucking the head off Michal all day, and it would make no difference to him. <laughs> okay. You know, whereas right. one haymaker from him, and I'd be flattened. So. Okay. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I have to do have one weakness, one Achilles heel, which is I'm almost blind in one eye. So, you know, if you approach right. me, I'm blind on the left side. Some people will say that that, that works in many ways. But um, <laughs> if you approach on my left, you're going to have a good chance of decking me. All right. Uh, so now, you know, I've told the world. Um, another question from Anthony Sheridan. My question concerns a worrying trend in mainstream journalism. The widespread quoting of anonymous sources, particularly when analysing current affairs. Please note, I am not referring to those anonymous sources that take risks to expose scandal and corruption. Everyone agrees that such sources must be protected by journalists at all times. But when it comes to political analysis, there is no good reason why sources should not be quoted. If someone doesn't wish to be quoted, then their view should not be used. A recent example will make the case. Jack Horgan Jones and Simon Carswell wrote an article analysing Leo Varadkar's imminent return to the office of Taoiseach, Irish Times, Saturday, 12th of December. Gary Murphy and Theresa Reedy are quoted in the article, but there's also an incredible 38 anonymous sources. Here are some examples. One Fine Gael source said, one source recalls, a well-placed source says, one minister says, says a government colleague, says one minister from another coalition party, and on and on. Would the panel agree that this practice provides endless scope for journalists to write biased articles in support of their personal political opinion? Thank you. Jack, defend yourself. I told Simon not to do it. <laughs> <laughs> 
well, look, you know, it's not going to sound good, obviously, if you run them all together. But there is a, there is a serious point under scoring this. And uh, I think that Anthony does have a point to a point. But I would invite him to perhaps imagine what that copy, that 3,000 odd words of copy would read like if everyone that we talked to uh, was being quoted on the record and we nigh on unreadable and have very little insight whatsoever into the character. You just get these complete You would get these completely anodyne yeah. quotes because in effect you're asking people to uh, critically analyse, let's just say, uh, shit talk might be another way of putting it, their boss or in some instances their boss's boss and you know there would be it was a bit like Clear if we interviewed you right now about what you really thought about Pat. Yes, it's sort of like that. I'll save, I'll save that for the pub later on. But, <laughs> but yeah, I suppose. Look, you know, within journalism, you do have the capacity to offer people, you know, this background um, nature of a conversation, and it it should be done on the understanding that you know you are not being misled, you know, but it is offering a particular insight in this instance into the character, political priorities and uh, capabilities of the man who will shortly be Taoiseach. So there is a kind of very clear public interest bar that is there to be met. You can um, see the objection though, can't you, Jen? Yeah, 100%. Of course I can. I mean, I, I think to the to people who read our articles and journalism, I, I can imagine that they're saying, well, you know, how come everybody is anonymous? Can can some of these people not put their name uh, uh, to the quote? But I totally agree with Jack. Anytime that I've asked, when I do a long read like that, if I ask someone, what actually happened in that room? You know, what did he actually say? And what did your man actually say in response? They'll say, oh, I could tell you off the record because if I tell you on the record, they're going to know it was me and I won't be able to tell you, won't be able to give you any on the record comment. It's about getting as much insight as you possibly can, which actually is uh, favourable to the reader in the long run because it's the real story as much as you can. What I do to the, the question of uh, personal agenda is really interesting one, really important one. And um, what I would do, when I'm, doing, I'm sure you did too, Jack, uh, when you're doing a long read like that, um, is you will... Make a list of people in the party, let's say it's about Fine Gael, and you will pick out people who you know are deliberately on one end of the spectrum, mm. on the other end of the spectrum, somewhere in the middle ground, and you interview them all to try and get the best, uh, you know, picture in the round. And then you write your piece on that basis and you don't inject the, the quote that you prefer, you inject the quote that you have. I suppose the thing I wonder about is we look at our particularly our dysfunctional friends across the water in the UK over the last while, the way that they've been ripping themselves apart and that tends to expose, pull away the, the magic curtain a little bit more than you do usually. So you hear about these people whose job is spinning or briefing and they're normally anonymous and then some of them aren't anonymous because things got so messy. And How much of that forms a part of what you're working with on a day-to-day -day basis, that you kind of spinning and misdirection. And, yeah, and you, all you, really, you really do constantly it's, it's, have to balance it and you have to try and, as Jen said, you know, almost mechanically reverse engineer your processes, but also understand your topic and understand exactly why someone might be saying something because you are extending a privilege to them. You know, you are allowing them to speak and influence, you know, people's voters' perceptions um, for behind a cloak of anonymity. So you do have to control and account for it. But like it is, it is, it may be a necessary evil, but it is very much, I'd say, a necessary one. So long as you are controlling for it and so long as you do have that kind of public interest standard that's being met, that you are kind of enriching the discourse, for want of a better phrase, and not Indeed. just allowing kind of tittle-tattle to be spread. Yeah, there was, um, uh, in the 1980s, actually, speaking of the UK, the London Independent tried to go down that road of not quoting any anonymous sources. Or dealing with the lobby, which or is dealing with the other part. Or, the lobby, or, or, the or dealing with the lobby, yeah. yeah. So they, they'd quote Sir Bernard Ingham as Sir Bernard Ingham rather than uh, a, a government source, which I think was the preferred method at that time. 
And the, the net result was that the London Independent had loads of credibility, but the London Independent also had no stories. And then a year later, the London Independent had to revert back or a year and a half later, it had to revert back uh, to using anonymous sources. There's always a danger with anonymous sources because people will have their agendas. People will try to score settle. And sometimes it you, you get the height of hypocrisy coming from a person who's talking to you anonymous, anonymously. They will criticise a person who is in a p- position of leadership. And then <laughs> half an hour later, they'll come out and make a public pronouncement and butter wouldn't melt in their mouth. So you do have to be very careful and you do try to second source. And as Jen said, I think that's a very good method of doing it. You try to get a spread of opinion. So you try to be as fair as possible. But there are always, there are always risks associated with it and you have to be conscious of them. You're not always going to catch them. It would be unrealistic to think otherwise. It, it, it would not be possible for us to inform our readers on the comings and goings, uh, the doings and misdoings in Irish politics without recourse to uh, anonymous sources. We do it consciously and we do it carefully. Are there rules that we should know about? I think there's no written rules, no. I think we rely on people's own knowledge of their subject matter and also their own ethical framework, which is something that we all share in this organisation, that... uh, uh, that sources shouldn't be allowed to abuse their privileges, nor should we take uh, take any side, or nor should we fail to report independently and as objectively as we can on uh, on what's going on. We are conscious of those, um, as the guys have all said, we are conscious of those uh, uh, of those pitfalls. But I think it's a point that. And, and readers should know and listeners to this podcast should know that we are conscious of these questions. But I think it's, um, it, it's, it's, it's a question of their trust, readers' trust in us, which we don't take lightly and we don't take for granted. But it extends to us the facility to use anonymous sources for the sole intention of informing people what is going on in the politics of their country. Right, on that combination of high principle and pragmatic sausage making, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back after this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
And you're very welcome back to this special podcast. Pat was talking just before the break about uh, how we try and do our job to the best of our abilities and to meet the meet certain standards. And it's because we endeavour to do that that we sometimes uh, try to remind you to take out a subscription if you have not already done so to irishtimes.com where for a very reasonable fee you'll have access to all our journalism for 365 or in a leap year, 366 days a year. Now, moving on, Brian Flaherty in Boston has a question. I was surprised to learn not too long ago that Ireland isn't a part of NATO. I always just assumed that you guys were. And I was wondering, with the recent situation in Ukraine and with Finland and Sweden changing their minds completely on joining NATO, is that something Ireland might consider sometime down the road? Or is it because your country is so on the periphery of Europe that they're thinking it's not really a concern and it's not really something they need to get involved with right now? Thanks so much. I suspect um, lots of people um, are in the same position as Brian around the world. I wouldn't say most people are conscious of Irish neutrality in the context of the, the great uh, the great power game of geopolitics. But things are changing, aren't they, Harry, when it comes in, in relation to Ireland's relationship with NATO in all kinds of ways, including, as Brian himself says, uh, some quite significant shifts in Europe since the start yeah, of the war in Ukraine. Yeah, two of the countries which have been neutral as, as long as Ireland has been neutral have suddenly uh, uh, ditched the neutrality and joined NATO and it has asked it has it has asked us to re-examine. I mean, I think uh, the concept of or neutrality has been thrown around like confetti uh, at a wedding or snuff at a wake. People are kind of say, "Oh, we're neutral," and but without ever interrogating what being neutral means. And then we hear political people saying, "Oh, we're military neutral, but we're not politically neutral," which I think can be slightly confusing uh, as well. I mean, they're essentially saying that that doesn't mean that we can't have a point of view and can't be. Um, uh, polit- politically uh, uh, motivated in other ways. Or, or but, even in the old Cold War days, it was quite clear which side of that argument yeah. Ireland was on, even if but it wasn't military. And even during, the second, even during the Second World War as well, I mean, we, were, we did favour the Allies. Um, you know, there was no doubt about that, even though the, the, the patina of neutrality still still retained there. I mean, it, it's a very difficult question. I mean, there are, two, there are two things. There's NATO in the first instance, and there's the European defence, and there are different things. And I think that if Ireland is to move away from neutrality towards some kind of common defence position, I suspect it will be in the direction of Europe it will move rather than in the direction of NATO. And then the second thing is that that, that, that ties in the idea of a greater Europe or greater integration or the federalisation of, of Europe. And that's another question that Ireland is possibly going to have to deal with over the next decade as well. I think what's happened in Ukraine has has has, uh, re, has, has re-established or brought a, a new debate in relation uh, to uh, neutrality. And I, I think that what has happened in Ukraine, uh, and if it continues to happen like that, and if there are any other uh, incidents like it in the future, I, I, I think that the, the, the large majority which has favoured neutrality in Ireland will will uh, gradually change. I have a view on it. I, I don't particularly want to share my, my own view on it, but I do think it's, it's a debate uh, that will uh, grow and will uh, become more relevant and more immediate uh, over the coming years. And I think neutrality is something that will be at issue in Ireland, in domestic politics. Well, there are two key the political term. debates that touch on this right now, aren't there? There's um, One is this question of the triple lock, which was put in place as a sort of official manifestation of Irish neutrality, that interve- you know military intervention could only occur with three, there are three different 
I suppose, uh, doors that we need to go through in order to in order to uh, achieve that. And one of those is a Security Council motion. The UN, to, to, to commit yeah. troops abroad. Well, yes, yeah. to commit troops yeah. abroad. And one of those is a UN Security Council motion. And as we know, the current UN Security Council, given its composition, is very unlikely to agree to a military intervention, intervention of any sort, no matter how justified an, an intervention might be for humanitarian or other reasons. And the other thing is, you know, we mentioned Sweden and Finland, Pat. Um, Sweden and Finland actually have effective military fighting forces um, yes. and Ireland doesn't. And that is becoming a more salient question. That's because they have a history of a large aggressive neighbour on their doorsteps and whereas we don't, well, not really. Um, or at least uh, at least not in, uh, not in recent memory anyway. Um, Irish public opinion is pretty clear on this. I, I, I sort of think neutrality is a bit like the kind of the third rail of Irish politics. There's massive public attachment to it. Most people in uh, policy and political elite circles think uh, that we should at least water down our neutrality and join European, uh, as, as Harry says, at the very least join a, um, uh, a European defence uh, cooperation but um, public is very attached to neutrality. We polled on it earlier this year. Two thirds of people say don't touch neutrality, and I don't think any government in the foreseeable future is actually going to is actually going to touch it. Mial Martin suggested earlier on this year that in the immediate wake of the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, that um, once this war is over, then there should be a citizens' assembly to discuss the future of our neutrality, which is, you know, one of those great political kicks to touch. And uh, so I think what will happen, and particularly as European defence cooperation intensifies, as it will over the coming years, I think you will see greater Irish involvement in that, but only, but without overstepping the bounds uh, of, uh, are clearly overstepping the bounds of neutrality. One of the things that always strikes me about uh, neutrality is that it's uh, it doesn't appear to be like uh, your virginity, in that it appears to be possible to lose it many times over and over again because every debate in uh, on, on defence matters in the Dáil uh, features pro-neutrality TDs saying we're about to lose our neutrality or what's left of it. Uh, and uh, so, you know, you can people can make up their, their own minds on that. My view is that uh, Irish neutrality de facto will continue to be whittled away a bit uh, through greater European defence cooperation, but there will be no uh, there will be no referendum on neutrality. There will be no formal abandonment of Irish neutrality because that's too difficult the Be- because of the views of the Irish people. Yeah, you, don't, yes. you don't need a referendum though. It's it's policy rather than it's not it's not enshrined in the constitution, so it could be yes, changed by but policy. But when there is such overwhelming support for neutrality and involving perhaps a minority. But perhaps the majority of voters, such a a great and acute sensitivity on the issue of neutrality. Is, is I think to abandon delineated? it, you would need probably something that like kind that. of yeah, but, it, but is it even clearly delineated what exactly no. is meant by Irish neutrality? Like as, as Harry points out, it's a, I think that there's a passing reference to some aspect of it in the constitution, but it's not a constitutionally held um, no, it's imperative. Yeah. And, and it's just, a just, to, just to return to something that, that, that Hugh said on. a little while ago about um, military investment, I mean. The, the the very clear possibility exists for significantly increased military investment, I would say, alongside an unaltered or slowly changing uh, iteration of what we mean by neutrality. I mean, one of the greatest periods or one of the largest periods of military investment in the history of the state was during the emergency when our neutrality was... Uh, an artifact that was very important to the state's policy at the time when we invested massively in the armed forces. So I don't think that, you know, the, the two debates necessarily go hand in hand, uh, although they are close cousins. 
neutrality means whatever the government of the day Precisely. says it yeah. means, really. Um, I mean, in, in, in practical terms, you're absolutely right. And there is a, a plan after the review earlier this year to very significantly increase uh, investment in the defence forces to look at things like, or to equip our defence forces with things like radar and that, which they, they don't... Yeah, I mean, uh, some of our listeners have. who aren't aware that we, are, we aren't in NATO might equally not be aware and be surprised by the idea that we don't, we have no real form of radar. And in fact... Uh, who looks after that end of things when it comes to our Western seaboard? Our friends in the United Kingdom. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But Hugh, do you know, there was actually a poll during the summer on the specific question of joining NATO. I think it was 52% in favour um, that was run by behaviour-wise. And I think if you're going to actually entertain that question, then any public debate would have to also discuss the terms of the treaty, you know, like Article 5, are you going to, which would require other countries to step in effectively if, if a country is attacked. Um, and in I think the European Union. In the European Union. Yeah. I think what you'd re- realistically, perhaps what might work, although I know there are people here who are not as in favour of committees as I am, but, you know, you would need kind of multi-party support um, and to actually thrash out the issues, perhaps at a, perhaps at a committee or in a committee there setting. There is anything to be said for another committee, Father. <laughs> <laughs> I love yeah. an L committee, Jack, you know that. But, but actually, triple lock is meaningless mm. at, at present. I mean, it made sense in the post-Cold War scenario when kind of Russia was on board, but Russia is no longer on board. So anything that 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 demands a, a triple lock uh, uh, inquiry or investigation at the moment is completely meaningless. Mm. So it's a policy that has no foundation. So at least, at the very least, the triple lock is something that should be looked and, at. By and this in fact, that, that could be the first kind of locus for this because I think the Fine Gael Ardesh actually passed the motion calling to get rid of the of the triple lock. So could that come to the fore in future policy debates, future manifestos, future programmes for government? That could be the first thing to, to really move to the fore the and, and see is, a substantial the change. Is the world is changing very fast around us. So that these, would be the these, logic. You know, these, these principles are going to have to change with them because that's the reality. Speaking of the European Union, we have a question from Julian Oliver. I am a retired uh, economist uh, living in Brussels and I would particularly be interested in how the Inside Politics team would rate, on a scale of one to five, the main representative uh, institutions and individuals uh, that Ireland uh, supports in uh, the EU. First of all, the European Parliament. Um, how have the MEPs uh, managed uh, since uh, Brexit? Are there any outstanding stars? How have they coped with the uh, departure of the UK MEPs and common interests? Secondly, the um, Permanent Representation Office, uh, have they been able to uh, do the sort of heavy lifting that was implicit in the departure of the UK after Brexit? in terms of uh, major uh, policy issues where there was common agreement on things like financial services, trade, international trade and migration. Thirdly, uh, how has the uh, Irish uh, Commissioner, Mairead McGuinness, who took over from Phil Hogan, managed in her portfolio, and any other uh, senior commission officials who've um, rated highly in uh, Ireland. And finally, would you like to comment on the role and uh, rating of uh, the EU Ombudsman, Emily O'Reilly? 
And we put Julian's question to our Europe correspondent, Naomi O'Leary. Hi, thanks very much for the question. Um, So Irish players in the EU, I would say in general, um, the Irish figures in the EU have a reputation of being team players. Ireland's seen as quite a constructive country in general, not a highly ideological one. Um, that favours finding compromises where possible. And from what I've heard anyway, Irish diplomats are considered by their counterparts to be generally well prepared and quite on top of their briefs. It's interesting that right now there are a number of Irish people in really crucial positions. So for example, Tony Murphy is um, currently president of the European Court of Auditors. He's former civil servant from Ireland. That means he's in charge of measuring how effective and efficient the spending of the EU is in all ways and finding out where the waste is. It's quite a crucial position. And also there's Emer Cook, who was really thrown in the deep end by becoming head of the European Medicines Agency just before it was about to start certifying COVID-19 vaccines. Um, And she did pretty well in that role, I think, under quite a lot of pressure. Emily O'Reilly, EU Ombudsman, She's made quite a splash a number of times. Uh, Her job is to basically hold the institutions to account in terms of proper standards of behaviour. And she's done pretty strong work on stuff like revolving doors and also challenging the European Commission in what was apparently going on there, which was the negotiation of the COVID-19 vaccine contracts by text message, which were then not properly um, archived as public documents of that kind should be. Clearly, Pascal Donoghue has done very well as Eurogroup president because there's been a lot of vocal support for him from other finance ministers and other key EU officials. Um, That isn't a given. And that puts him at the heart of the EU's debates around joint borrowing and spending rules at a really interesting time. The Irish Commissioner, Mairead McGuinness, she started her brief at a difficult time. Uh, So during the pandemic, Everything was remote and I think she was a bit isolated because the rest of the commission had already started without her sometime prior. So it took her a little bit of time, I think, to get her feet under the table. But I think they are under the table now. Um, She's working on some very significant files. So stuff like sanctions, banking reform, uh, crypto regulation and stuff. This is all things that Mairead McGuinness doesn't necessarily have a technical background in herself. But, you know, from being in briefings with her and so on, you can see that she's someone who's okay to delegate. So she brings her officials who who do have that technical background with her and she's happy to sort of rely on them where needed. And where she comes in is the sort of like how to sell something politically. And that had a, a lot to do with why she was chosen, I think, for the job, because she was quite useful with her European Parliament background in getting stuff through the Parliament. In general, she comes across as someone who works uh she's careful um fairly diligent i think she's doing fine in terms of the meps then um the most visible irish meps are without doubt claire daly and mick wallace the left-wing independents the left group independents i should say rather um i would say they're not particularly popular in the parliament so i'm not sure i would describe them as like star meps because their views on international affairs are considered pretty fringe and they've upset quite a lot of people, particularly in a number of uh, speeches and votes following the invasion of Ukraine. There are 13 Irish MEPs in general and four of them started for one reason or another in 2020, more or less during the pandemic. So again, there was that issue 
of, you know, they were new, they didn't physically meet people, plenaries weren't physically being held for a long time. So I think it took some of them a while to get going. Also, I think some of them had COVID and it, it was a long process and stuff. Um, but now things are firmly back up and running. Um, so there was a little bit of a delayed reaction, I think, with some of them. In general, as a rule, I would say the MEPs, they do work hard and they are diligent. Um, I mean, the back and forth travel that's required from Brussels and Strasbourg and then being back in your constituency really is considerable. And, you know, in order to be on top of the legislative files, it does actually require quite a lot of application. And um, in general, I think Irish MEPs are pretty hardworking. For everyone that, you know, is kind of good at self-promotion and getting visibility, there's another one who you might say you wouldn't hear of them that much, but they're they're more like steadily working away on some legislative file in the background. So it's hard to actually pick one out to say like this person or that person is doing a splash. I'm quite impressed with the way um, how active Sean Kelly is. He's the head of the Fine Gael delegation and he's actually 70 years old, but you would never guess it because he seems to be everywhere and on top of everything. Um, the green MEPs, I get a lot of positive feedback around them. Um they also have landed themselves quite important roles on particular legislative topics. So, for example, Grace O'Sullivan is going to be quite a key person in negotiating a legislation on plastic packaging, essentially reducing plastic packaging. And Kieran Cuff, likewise, on a topic to do with increasing the energy efficiency of buildings, which might sound boring, but this is actually very crucial. It's like a huge amount of emissions in the EU are from buildings. And so increasing the efficiency of them is actually really crucial to the climate transition. Some of the other MEPs, you can see that what they're trying to do is carve out a niche for themselves by identifying with or, you know, being particularly active on a certain topic. So I've noticed that, for example, with Maria Walsh on mental health and LGBT issues and Frances Fitzgerald um, on women's rights. Those are some that come to mind. Um, in terms of the departure of the UK and how this is affected, Ireland. Uh, I would say that Ireland got a free ride policy-wise on a lot of issues while the UK was in the EU because the UK essentially agreed with Ireland on a lot of stuff and was a big country that was quite helpful. So it meant that the Irish basically could rely on the UK to fight the diplomatic battles uh, for them. But now Ireland has to be on top of a lot of more stuff. And that is actually really challenging for a small country with a small staff. Linguistically also, Ireland relies on the fact that the Eastern European countries use English and, and keep it as a lingua franca. What I've seen happen is that Ireland is getting quite creative with alliances with other countries. Often this is with the likes of the Netherlands, um, Sweden, sort of North Sea countries that see eye to eye with Ireland often on like fiscal topics. Um, but it's not always with them. You also see uh, sometimes, you know, working with countries more to the east and the Baltics and so, so on. And it's working, I would say, so far. It's working. Is it yet to be tested properly? I wonder. There's some key debates coming up in Europe to do with defence policy, um, to do with fiscal policy. Uh, in general, the EU, under the pressure of the pandemic and now the war, is working more cohesively together than it was before. Um, so post-Brexit, it's a lot more cohesive and cooperation is actually working pretty strongly. So it's a moment of um, transformation and development for the EU. And sometimes I, w I wonder whether there's a bit of a disconnect domestically in Ireland with how very much Ireland is embedded within that process. I'm, I'm not sure there's 
sufficient public awareness and engagement with some of the questions that this raises. And I think a lot of that has to do with how media is structured um, in Ireland and our reliance on UK media is a bit of an issue now that they're no longer in the EU. But that's a topic for another day. Thanks for the question. And thanks to Naomi for that. Now, we have a question from Michael Russell. He wrote the following. With Sinn Féin slipping back in the polls and support for the coalition appearing to remain strong, has there been any discussion or speculation in government about a snap election to try and secure another full term? Sinn Féin don't appear to have all their candidates in place yet, so now is likely to be the weakest they will be in the next two years. What does anybody think of Michael's question? No. No, no, no I don't think so. That's myself, a definite no, because, yeah. because it would be... Because they they may be slip, they may be slipping back in the polls, but they still have a double point lead in every single poll. Exactly. So I mean, yeah. there is nothing to suggest that a. But um, also, like Leo Varadkar has just began his term as Taoiseach. You know, he he wants to do the two and a half years. He has no intention of coming into the job and then heading off to the hills or you know or heading off for for a general election. Um, and also, the electoral commission will have their boundary report. There'll be a change in the shape of uh, constituencies. I think by next summer we'll have a good idea of that. That will change the picture and I think they, they're going to wait at least after that. They also need to differentiate between each other as well. At some point in the yes. next two and a half years, one of the big things that is going to happen, and I think maybe the local and European elections might be uh, the, the hinge point for this, is that the the two big parties in government in particular will have to start outlining to voters why they are different and what they would do different from each other. And it's going to be a remarkably difficult task because they are so, on paper, similar to each other and they have a similar outlook and it's getting more and more similar. That'll be the fun bit. In general, you need... Don't don't governments get penalised by the electorate generally? His history has shown for trying to jump the gun and pull a a smart one like that. If you're going to have, call a snap election, you need a reason for it. And because I think I might do better in it than in a future election is not a good enough reason to put before the voters. We learned, we were reminded of this most recently by Theresa May when she uh, when she called a snap election in uh, in 2017. So, um, I do think there's a related interesting point that is worth digressing briefly onto. And to be honest, I look forward to addressing this question in more detail but next year or perhaps uh, the, the year after. But Fine Gael, in the last number of elections that Fine Gael has called from within government, it has got the timing completely arseways. Yeah. Right? So in when Fine Gael was in government in 1997, it went in uh, June of that year, had it wait, could have waited as late as November, had it waited until uh, November, there would have been, I think, two tribunals. Uh, one tribunal would have reported, another one would have been set up involving Fianna Fáil uh, politicians. Ray Burke had to, for those of you with long memories, Ray Burke had to resign that uh, that summer. The next time Fine Gael was in, government was in 2016. It elected to wait mm. until February of 2016 instead of going when it was more popular in the autumn of On the insistence of, of the Labour Party. Yeah. That is true. Mm-hmm. On the insistence of Joan, uh, Joan, Joan Burke, when the teacher was a teacher. Mm-hmm. And Kenny could have called the election uh, when he wanted to. So they held on uh, and said, so they went early in 97. Wrong decision. They, uh, they held on in 2016. 16, wrong decision. They held on in 2020 when they could have gone in 2019 in the but midst of But isn't the Brexit. reality in all that, and in fact going all the way back to the 1930s, and they waited past, until the is that Fine Gael is one of Europe's least impressive electoral machines? Well, well look, that's the subject of a whole, uh, and, and, of and a whole it, other podcast. It only but, manages to get power when the other side screw up so badly that an alternative is required. Well, that may... May well be the case, Hugh. We'll go into that in maybe greater detail, greater, more more uh, more granular detail at some stage in the future. My point is that I think this will be weighing heavily on Leo Varadkar and Fine Gael decision makers. So, on the assumption 
that Fine Gael will again make the wrong decision as to when the time to time the election, then I think it is possible no, I think that they, we I think look forward to a an autumn twenty. 25. Uh, 24. Like 2024. Possibly. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, I think yeah. the government will do its full term. I mean, I if you so look at, at snap elections in the Irish context, Pat was talking about uh, Theresa May in Britain, but I think the last two snap elections that were held in Ireland, as far as I can recall, were 1987, 1989, when Charlie Hawhey's minority government, he, he became impatient with all the votes that they'd lost and he, he called a snap election and Fianna Fáil did badly in it. Mm-hmm. They, they had to go into coalition with the PDs uh, for the first time. They're the kind of the Sinn Féin of its day, really, in terms of Hawhey and Desi O'Malley. And the only the time before that, I think there might have been a snap election in 1982 as well, early 1982, that Hawhey called as well, which 81. he lost. Yeah, uh, he, he... 81 or 82? 81. Well, there was an election in 81, 81. There were two elections in 82. Yeah, and he was very badly advised. He advised himself. He, he, he decided to go ahead with it. It happened at the time when hunger strikers were dying left, right and centres. And three of them actually, two of them were actually elected to the Dáil, thus depriving him of his uh, minority. I mean, they, the government, the Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil particularly, are all in in relation to this. They need, they need to have a full term. Can I ask Because if they don't have a full term, people will say, what have you done? Can I, but, but, can but there's I a difference between the difference oh, a snap ahead. election and an election that occurs before the, the end of the natural term of the government. Yeah, the yeah well, there the were two snap elections. And, and I think that I tend to agree with Pat that I can see something happening in the autumn of 2024, immediately after the budget, after they know and have a, had a chance to kind of ingest the results of the local and European elections. And that while it won't happen, you know, ostensibly by arrangement, there will be a kind of a, a quiet acquiescence to the idea that it's better to go now because the closer you go to to the end of your legal term the less agency you have the less power but, but you will have they, Will they do well in the local and European elections? I mean Sinn Féin did I mean, badly everything, in everything 19, suggest, 2019 Everything would suggest no but like it's entirely possible to take the wrong uh, signal from local and European elections I mean well, if, we if, we if, if, Sinn, if Sinn Féin were to take election. a signal yeah. from the last right. local and European elections So we then. will have then if that if that scenario plays out, local and European elections in late spring, early summer, start of summer, mm. and then we will have more than likely, you're saying, a general election in the autumn. I, I disagree. And is there, disagree. Is there a presidential so election floating around as well? But I think about it this way, Hugh, okay. Um, why would they go earlier when they have so much, the chances of that, and this government having achieved any of their goals in terms of housing and health are already slim enough if they cut themselves off eight months, you know, at least they get yeah, themselves... So you cut yourself off. See, if you go well, it depends October on the numbers, is what 24, I mm. you know, your, your choice is between then and February 2020. If they're able to show momentum as well by then. Yeah. Big mo. Mm. Like if they are, if they are able, if they are able to effectively offer to the electorate what I what, what I think that the proposal will be, <laughs> that progress is being made by the centre or by mm. the mainstream, stick with us as opposed to risking it all on change um, you know the flashy yeah. attractiveness of change then I think that like the, the prospect of another four, six, eight months is is diminished particularly if like, within that four, six, eight months across the kind of winter period you have you know the worsening trolley yeah. crises etc all these things I'm that just are saying if they're failing miserably still at their targets I, I can't see them being like we're failing let's go I think if they're, they're failing, if they're failing at their targets in 2024 it could, it could come down by you, virtue of that fact you remind me the point you made 
Fine Gael's electoral capabilities and, yes. and machinations, sure, don't they admit it themselves? They say, we're always ready to step in when the country needs us and it's on its knees. It's like, oh, well, that's just prove the point. But Think Hugh, about it, it's true. Hugh is, Hugh is also right. I mean, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil are going to have to take the, the Pepsi challenge uh, mm. before 2025. And one of the, the uh, Sean O'Rourke has a, uh, an RT series and podcast that's coming on at the moment, Two Tribes. Oh my God, and another the, RT podcast. I know, terrible. <laughs> well, hopefully this one is good. Uh, <laughs> but one of the central arguments that, that he has, and I heard Jerry Howland talking about this over the weekend, is that they, they, the parties have become indistinguishable. So, I mean, there is an onus on both parties to show that they are, in fact, distinguishable. And that's that's one of the big challenges both will have. This is the great challenge facing Faradkar, isn't it? Yes. In the second half of the government, it's to lead the government uh, and appear and and project cohesiveness and togetherness and shared goals and all that as the election approaches, in which his candidates and Fianna Fáil candidates will be rivals for votes. Mm. Yeah. We're going to leave it on that note. But the good news is that we got so many good questions this year that we're actually going to have a second Ask Me Anything. So we'll be rejoining you with that um, in a week's time. But for the moment and for right now, thanks very much to Jennifer Bray, Harry McGee, Jack Horgan-Jones and to Pat Leahy and our producer Declan Condon and indeed JJ Vernon on the decks. Uh, We'll be talking to you very soon indeed. Hope you're enjoying your Christmas. 